Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Formation Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Sarah Hinlicky wilson Sarah is no stranger to this podcast. She's been on a number of times. She herself hosts a podcast of her own with her theologian father. It's called Queen of the Sciences. She also has a newsletter called uh, Theology and a Recipe, where you get some theological ideas and a recipe regularly if you sign up for that. So you go to her website, sarahhinlickywilson.com, if you want to uh, find any of that content. She's also a pastor in Japan and a scholar of uh, systematic theology and Lutheran theology in particular, but ecumenical theology. She's really amazing and wonderful preacher and person and friend of the show and friend of mine. So glad to have her on this week. Our text this week is Psalm 37, Psalm 37. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. Yeah, let's hear Psalm 37. All right. So this is an English translation of a German translation of the psalm from the commentator Hans-Joachim Krauss. So I will read it. Well, I should say, except I've substituted in the Lord for his translation of the Tetragrammaton, which I prefer not to say out of respect for Jewish believers. Okay. Do not fret about the wicked. Do not be angry concerning evildoers. For like grass, they will dry up quickly and wither like a green plant. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and keep faithfulness. And have your joy in the Lord, for he will give you what your heart desires. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him. He will tend to it. Like light, he lets your righteousness rise and justice for you like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait for him. Do not fret about the success of the fortunate person, about the man who plots cunning devices. Cease from anger and depart from the grudge. Fret not, it only leads to wickedness. For the wicked are destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will possess the land. Only a short time, and the ungodly will have disappeared. And if you look at his place, he is no longer there. But the poor will possess the land and will have their joy in the fullness of prosperity. Mischief the wicked plots against the pious and gnashes his teeth against him. But the Lord laughs at him, for he he sees that his day is coming. The ungodly draw the sword and bend their bows to fell the poor and the weak, to murder those who walk uprightly. Their sword pierces their own heart and their bows are broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the great riches of the ungodly. For the arms of the ungodly are broken, 
but the Lord supports the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. Their inheritance remains forever. They are not put to shame in times of adversity, and in the days of hunger they are filled. For the ungodly perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the glory of the pastures, they vanish, vanish in smoke. The ungodly must borrow and cannot repay, but the righteous can spend and give. For those whom he blesses possess the land, but those whom he curses are destroyed. The Lord guides the steps of the man. He supports him whose way pleases him. If he falls, he will not sprawl down, for the Lord supports his hand. I was young, grew old, but never did I see a righteous man forsaken or his children begging for bread. All his days he can give and lend, and his descendants become a blessing. Withdraw from evil and do good, and you will remain living forever. For the Lord loves justice, forsakes not his godly people. The wicked are destroyed forever, and the seed of the godly is exterminated. The righteous will possess the land and live in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. His God's direction he bears in his heart. His steps do not waver. The ungodly lies in wait for the righteous and seeks to kill him. But the Lord does not give him up to his power, does not let him be condemned when he is judged. Hope in the Lord and preserve his way, and he will exalt you to possess the land. When the ungodly are exterminated, you will look on. I saw the ungodly frolic exalt himself like a green cedar. I came by and he was gone. I looked for him. He no longer could be found. Preserve innocence and practice uprightness. The end of such a man is prosperity. The reprobate are all destroyed. The end of the ungodly is ruined. The help of the righteous emanates from the Lord. He is their refuge in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and saves them. He frees them from the ungodly and helps them, for they seek refuge with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, may the word which you speak and the words which are spoken back to you in prayer, in song, and in psalm. May this exchange of words between you and us and between and among ourselves, may it all be pleasing in your sight. And may the conversation that Sarah and I have this hour be a blessing and a facilitation of meditation and insight and service for those who listen in. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, Sarah, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, so we've done a couple texts now, I think all from epistles. Yeah, then I reached out to you said, hey, we're doing Psalms this year, and you were a little reluctant, <laughs> and <laughs> which, which I found curious. I'll say more of why I found that curious, but uh, maybe you can say a little bit about your reluctance and your process there, just it might give us an insight into how you experience this altar. Sure. Well, I, I wear my difficulties with scripture on my sleeve. It's no secrets. One thing is just academic bashfulness. I have no Hebrew left. And even though I'm a huge fan of the Old Testament and preach on it regularly in my congregation, you know, to come on fresh text without a linguistic background just was a little, <laughs> a little intimidating. But secondly, I just, I have, I've just never learned to love the Psalms. And like, so 
I know a lot of people take great comfort in them, and the comfort I get in scripture does not primarily come from Psalms. But then there's so many really disturbing Psalms, and actually I'm really drawn to disturbing parts of scripture. Like I love Judges, which is a really sick and twisted tale. And of course, you know, the crucifixion is a terrible story, but like the the pain of the Psalms and the the difficulties there, I've just never like fully connected to. And I know that's I mean, that's the strength of the Psalms is that they have every human emotion is is captured and, you know, forced to come into dialogue with the Lord. And that's amazing. But I just I don't know. I don't have the the Psalm node in my heart <laughs> that just naturally collects. So uh, I, you know, and it's really funny. I even reintroduced the weekly Psalm in my congregation. It, they just kind of, I don't know why, just given up on them. So we do Psalms every week. I almost, I don't think I've ever preached on them yet since I've been at my current church, but um, yeah. So, but and on the other hand, I was like, well, Sarah, this is a good reason to try again. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> Oh, but you know, what's really funny. The very first sermon I ever preached in my life was on Psalm 29. And actually I love Psalm 29 because I had to really struggle to, you know, do something with it. So maybe it's, I have to like get the Psalms one by one through struggle in a very Yisrael kind of way. And then, um, but as, as a body, they don't quite, they haven't captivated me yet, but you know, there's time. Challenge accepted. <laughs> that's our that's the task this year is to get sarah to dig the psalms all right yes. <laughs> it's about time oh wow fun fact psalm 29 like so it's no secret to our listeners that we work way ahead these aren't live you know <laughs> uh, so psalm 29 amy peeler and i already recorded oh, that. Nice. So as we're recording this, that hasn't dropped yet. But when people mm-hmm. listen to this, it will have dropped. So in case a listener didn't hear that one. Um, well, I will definitely be listening to that one. Yeah. Well, Amy, Amy's great. So yeah, no, I, I get that feeling. I'm of course very intimidated by the Hebrew too. I'm mm. not a, I mean, I'm not really much of a languages guy anyway. I'm relatively comfortable with New Testament Greek, partially because the New Testament's so small, so you can kind of just master the <laughs> this tiny vocabulary. Well, and it works more like English than Hebrew does. You know, Greek yeah. and English are Indo-European. It Hebrew's has not. the same logic. <laughs> so, well, exactly. it's Semitic, right? Yeah, it's got its own thing. Yeah, has its own way of thinking. That's not a natural fit, I think, for uh, especially for folks like you and I, Sarah. <laughs> 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 yeah, but. Uh, I mean, I've come to have a deep connection with the Psalter, but it is more recent. Oh, that is helpful to hear. Okay. Yeah, no, it can happen. Yeah. No, it's a later development in my life. So hope springs eternal. <laughs> yeah. So I think I gave you a few options. I You, you chose 37. Uh, what was it about 37 or what is it about 37 that that attracts you or repulses you, but in an interesting Way. Well, yes, both. Okay, <laughs> okay. so like, perfect. Psalm thirty-seven has like one of my favorite verses of all the psalms, and then one that irritates me most of all the psalms. Perfect. And we have an agenda for the day. That's great because right? we, can, we can't cover this whole psalm. It's a monster, you know. So. I know there's so much. There's so much in it. But okay, so tell us. Yeah, what are which ones? Verse seven contains in this translation: "Fret not 
it only leads to wickedness. I remember coming across that in seminary when I was just not doing great and was unhappy and anxious a lot of the time. And I just came across it. And, you know, I think the version I read was do not worry. It only leads to evil or something like that. And I was like, man, that is a verse for me. (laughs) Just stop worrying. And, you know, I'm just sort of a worry wart by nature. So that was one case where it was just like the, you know, simple, direct scriptural word addressed to you where you are and you just hear it as you need it and take it as you need it. And it's great. But then later in the Psalm, at verse 25, the, the sort of um, imaginary sage who was, uh, as my, the commentary says, calming down the fanatic of righteousness who appears to be a young man. <laughs> he is the, the old sage says, I was young, grew old, but never did I see a righteous man forsaken or his children begging for bread. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. really? <laughs> And it's not just like the claim itself, which cannot possibly be true, but then you can even twist it further and make the implication, well, if someone is forsaken or begging for bread, it must be because they're unrighteous. And it's just like fascinating to me that these two things are in the same psalm. But then I guess what was when you, because you forced me to deal with the psalm again, as I was struggling through this, what I finally came to was this psalm is not intended to be an objective propositional content about this worldly justice. And I think what it is, and we can unpack this as we go, I think what it is, is a rousing call to courageously resist participation in corruption because justice lies with the living God. And so if I can like detach from my argument that propositionally verse 25 is not true and take it rather set in this whole argument that you don't need to be suckered into corruption. You can step aside and opt out because righteousness will ultimately win out. So put yourself on that side. Then I can like kind of wrap my mind a little bit more around what the Psalm's trying to do. Well, that's already a really helpful kind of thesis about what the Psalm's communicating, the big idea of the Psalm that actually fits back really well and contextualizes the kind of standalone verse that has meant something to you Mm. in the past, right? Because that's that's the implication. Because often we justify our own wielding of power, our own manipulation, our own corruption. I'm kind of scaling that up. (laughs) We usually don't call it, hey, I'm going to be corrupt. We justify that. in the face of other people's corruption. You know, it's like, oh, I don't want to play those games, but these people are playing those games. And if they win, that's going to be bad. So we fret and then we're drawn into evil ourselves. I think that helps connect also to the the theme recurrent in the Psalm about, it's sort of subtle, but it's, it's something like money management. <laughs> like if you live a disciplined life, and manage your money well, then actually the benefit is that you can be generous, you can give, you can lend. I was really struck that those are two different things, but they're also good things. But I I was just sort of like playing it out in my mind with this call to resist corruption. I thought, well, if you are righteously disciplined in your money or your, your property, what would have been a time appropriate there as well as for us now? 
then you actually have the resources to engage in moral freedom <laughs> and you can step away because you're not panicked that like, if I quit this job that I know, and in fact, I just talked to a, a friend that I reconnected with who I hadn't talked to for a long time. And I, I won't go into a, too many revealing details, but basically she worked for a company that was explicitly dedicated to making the world a better place. And she thought this would be a great place to work rather than in financial institutions where she'd worked before because you know they had such a high and admirable goal. And I can assure you it was an objectively high and admirable goal. And after a year, she couldn't take it and had to quit because she said it was so corrupt, so egotistical, so rivalrous, <laughs> just one person after another, you know, clamoring over each other's skulls to get ahead and was just horrified and just was like, I, I and then was ultimately asked to do things that she couldn't in good conscience do. And her comment at the end of it was, man, I would take hedge fund managers over these guys any day, <laughs> which I thought was so comical. You never hear a good word said for hedge fund managers. But anyway, it was just the, the and she was in a position where she was financially secure enough to have the moral freedom to walk away and say, it doesn't matter what they say about their righteousness. It's not there. And I can't participate in this anymore. And then she was just able to exit completely. So I think it's something Something like that is going on in the psalm. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And that's an example of, this even comes a little to my own story of how the psalms finally connected with me. So, you know, as we put ourselves in her shoes, this friend of yours, imagine kind of praying rather than preaching verse 25. And it has a whole different vibe, you know? Oh, yeah. As a lad... And now I'm old, and I've never seen a just man forsaken or his seed seeking bread. Mm-hmm. Okay, like as a prayerful, as a either a, a contemplative claim rather than as a sort of empirical <laughs> claim, yeah. right? To learn how to say that and to learn to believe that. It's, it's a way of saying, I can say no to these, you know, temptations or to these things that kind of seem to be binding me into doing things against what's just because God is going to take care of me. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to just be totally stuck. Yeah. I have moral freedom available to me and I can trust in the Lord. You know, that strikes me also now that it specifically says children or seed, because isn't that where we're most actually susceptible to corruption is for the sake of our children, you know, and it's how the world exploits our best instincts and turns them to the worst. So for another example, that's in, right. in like the uh, history of communist Czechoslovakia, like the first 20 years were like the really nasty Stalin-esque throwing people in prison and executing them kind of one. But then after the Prague spring and the Warsaw troops rolled in in 1968 and crushed everything. And then they had 20 years of what they call normalization. And actually the strategy really changed at that point. They threw far fewer people in prison, much less overt persecution, but it was all very subtle, like community trust destroying. And one of the number one ways to get people to comply was if you don't do this, your kid isn't getting into the good high school, is not getting into university at all, has no future, no prospects. And obviously they can't emigrate or start a new business, you know? So if you don't get education or your kid doesn't get education, you're just out of luck. 
So I was just like, as you were saying that, I was imagining, okay, being able to pray something like this, you know, will my child go begging for bread unless I participate in this, this wicked, corrupt society? You know, I can't make any great claims that I would have done the right thing in that situation. But I think that kind of gives a sense, again, of like the high stakes here of praying this rather than asserting it. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, and even in Western or Westernized countries that have so much greater political freedom, uh, how much does that worry about your child's future? Isn't that the thing that corrupts us even in, true. you know? So true. Good point. Very <laughs> I good mean, point. I, I mean, I, I'm not making a moral equivalence, but simply saying it's funny how familiar that anxiety sounds. Yeah. And even yeah, though yeah, the, yeah. the oppression was greater, it still has a corrupting effect. Well, man, this is already really good conversation. Thanks, Sarah. Let's take a quick break and come back and explore some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Sarah Henlicky-Wilson, and we're looking at Psalm 37, a lengthy psalm. I think I'll uh, avoid reading it a second time right now. Maybe we will at the end. I don't know. But uh, yeah, long acrostic psalm, maybe acrostic psalm. But yeah, so right before the break, we were talking about praying versus proclaiming a psalm. And that was kind of, that was the shift for me that connected me with the Psalms as someone who is oriented towards ideas, propositions, concepts, arguments, you know. Same here. (laughs) Yeah. So I was around people who dwelled in the Psalms. And so I had, I wanted to want the Psalms, (laughs) you know, but they, you know. I hear you. And the key was as I began Praying the Psalter like at morning and evening prayer, I use a Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer just because that's the closest to my tradition in the Wesleyan tradition. That's kind of our roots. And just praying through the whole Psalter like you know every seven weeks or so, just kind of cycling through a few psalms in the morning, a few psalms in the evening, and just like when I'd go on retreats to monasteries and kind of just see the monks living in the psalms. And like there was something that happened like when I started chanting them. So like. Mm. singing them and not just reading, you know, so like hearing and hearing them as song, which is what they are, even though we don't know the original tunes, you can set them to a tune. Mm. And I started learning different chant tunes and it's fun because you can set the, you can set those tunes to different Psalms. So none of them are fixed. So chanting the Psalms and kind of, and music has a way of kind of bypassing that more propositional logical approach to a text. So even though I'm looking at it, I'm kind of experiencing it with my whole body, not just my head and eyes, you know, there's the mouth and the ears and the lungs as I, you know, so that was, that was the big game changer for me over the last five, six, seven years was just praying the Psalms to stop thinking of them as like the text of like the preaching text, you know, know? (laughs) but as, as, as songs, as prayers. And then all of a sudden, sometimes, yeah, the very, some of the, the strangest passages all of a sudden kind of just kind of make sense because they're the kind of thing you might sing. They're the kind of thing you might pray. Right, right, right. Even though they might not be the kind of thing I would like, you know, teach or as a, as a promise or as a proposition. That was the real game changer for me. 
Yeah. Wow. You know, now that you say it, I'd completely forgotten this, but when I was growing up, we always chanted the Psalm. <laughs> like it was never just read responsibly, which is what I do now, but um, we was, would always sing it. I completely forgot. It's, isn't that weird that I didn't even remember that we used to do it that way? Huh? So clearly the tradition was right. <laughs> I have to go back and try that again. <laughs> Shocker. Yeah, spoiler, right. spoiler alert. The tradition <laughs> has wisdom embedded in it, even if it can't explain itself. Funny. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So let's see with some themes here. I think you may have mentioned on the break some maybe Christological connections. Do you want to? Yeah. You want to explore those? Yeah, let me do some of those. So they just kind of jumped out at me. And again, because, because I can't go back to the original language, I don't know how legit these are. But then again, like what is interpretation? But, you know, forcing all of the Bible to be in conversation with itself. So, okay. So verses 14 and 15, the ungodly draw the sword and bend their bows to fell the poor and the weak to murder those who walk uprightly. Their sword pierces their own heart and their bows are broken. Now, this might be really a stretch, but as a you know, New Testament reader, I was just really, I immediately thought of when Jesus is being arrested and they pull out the sword and, um, you know, threaten it or beforehand they say, we have two swords. And Jesus is like, it's enough, <laughs> you know, and, and so the ear of the, the chief priest's slave is cut off. And in one case, Jesus, you know, puts it back on or whatever heals it. But then in verse 15, that one made me think of Mary being told by Simeon, right? That a sword will pierce her own heart. And so it was just, it was one of those um, like uh, shape-shifting moments you have in scripture where clearly this is, you know, like a critique of the bad people. And yet the Christological allusions to me seem like so overwhelmingly powerful, but, you know, it's the, in the, in verse 14, it's reminding me of the disciples who are about to have their worst moment ever. Right. But in the second one, you know, Mary's not a bad girl, you know, she's, she is as, as good as they come among the, the purely human. And, um, and yet, and anyway, the sword pierces her own heart. Was Simeon drawing on that in some way? And what was he thinking of to say that to Mary of all people? Yeah. At the very least, it's a, some kind of idiom that would, you know, kind of fit and a way of speaking that would be sort of scriptural language, you know? And yeah, yeah I love that connection to the, the scene because Peter in, and, and he cuts off, you know, he's, again, it's a classic case of what we were talking about earlier. It actually, it, it's a, it's an example of how that Christological connection you're making also links with the ethos of the text because I mean, it's, it's this oppressive act as they're coming to arrest Jesus. I mean, Peter is fretting himself over evildoers, right? <laughs> right. And then what does he do? He lashes out and cuts off the ear of a of the servant. So he's not even like attacking like the power center of this. It's someone who may in fact be poor and needy, you know, yeah. and not, you know, is just along for the ride against even their own will. I mean, we don't know the whole backstory, but it's not like it says, you know, Peter accosted the captain of the guard. No, he chops the ear off of a, like a, like a tag along collateral damage. Right. So it's actually in an, it's actually an embodiment of this yeah. of the larger theme. So it, yeah. which makes it feel a little less forced, you know? Yeah. And I even wonder now that you say that in, in does Luke report Mary and the other, the siblings of Jesus coming to try to drag him away and kind of like puts a little bit of, 
Because there's like, at least I know Mark reports this tension with the family. And, you know, what mother wants to see her son grow up to die horribly, you know, is is also Mary's temptation here to say, like, this is this is not what Gabriel promised me. <laughs> you know, son, come on, like, you just pull back a little bit here. Don't don't go down this route that you're headed down. You know, is that somehow her temptation to be ungodly to save her son who needs to not be saved in order that he may save? You know, that's that's. I don't know. I'm, I'm probably pushing it a bit, but why not? You know, there's all this, you know, deep intertextuality going on. That's my excuse for everything. <laughs> well, it's a good excuse in general, and it's especially relevant in the Psalms, which are never meant to kind of stand alone. They're always being sung and prayed again and again and kind of bumping off other texts, you know? So what yeah. texts you put them next to brings things out. And I don't think we should ever shy away from that, you know? So, yeah. Well, then, okay, in this case, let me bring out another Christological one, which connects back to the propositional versus praying version. Because, let's see, uh, okay, verses 30, or so starting in like 29, it's describing the righteous, right? Who possess the land, utter wisdom, speak justice, bears God's direction in his heart, steps do not waver. The un- All right, so th- here's where it gets non-propositional. Verse 32, the ungodly lies in wait for the righteous and seeks to kill him. Verse 33, but the Lord does not give him up to his power, does not let him be condemned when he is judged. So again, I could not but read this Christologically and say, hey, wait a minute, (laughs) but that is exactly what happens, not just to assorted prophets and martyrs, but I mean, most of all to the beloved one who is righteous in every way and they seek to kill him, but God, the Lord does give him up to his power and lets him be condemned when he is judged. So again, I'm just struck by the clash there between the propositional statement and then the, the Christological reality. And then so help me talk through how I would then pray this rather than assert this. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is I can't, I don't know how to talk anyone through that. It's, it's not a thing you can talk (laughs) through. It's something that's experienced, you know, by at the very least the rhythm of regular praying of the Psalms, there's a recognition. Oh, that's the part of the Psalm that I don't click with this time. And then you have the days (laughs) when you're like, that is exactly how I'm feeling or that's what I'm hoping is the case. Cause at the very least, Surely we hope this is true. And actually we have a, like, it would be a, an error to sort of just become utterly, sort of so utterly cynical to say there's just no connection between right. justice and shalom, peace. So there really are these two strains. So not now I will talk through it. Okay. I just wanted to say <laughs> first, the, like, I mean, there's Fair no enough. real, there's no conceptual solution to learning how to be less wedded to our own concepts, right? <laughs> to a conceptual way of being in that the world. That was brilliantly right? put. Yes. <laughs> oh, why, thank you, sir. <laughs> um, but the thing that's worth mentioning as a background, even as we move into, because it isn't an Old Testament versus new thing, it's right in, the Old Testament has this tension between what's often referred to as a kind of Deuteronomistic worldview that's really strong in Proverbs. So I'll just stick to the wisdom literature Within the wisdom literature, I mean, the Proverbs really hammer this view home, right? Mm. And Job is kind of the main counterpoint as the kind of, no, I know I'm just, and yet there's the suffering, right? So that, that is a kind of severing of the connection between justice and well-being. 
And then what's fun about the Psalter is it talks out of two sides of its mouth. You get both strains <laughs> in the Psalter. And some of that's because it's so many, so many different authors over so many centuries. It, right, it's not. Right. Well, and because life is complicated. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so, but this Psalm, I would say, has, is clearly more, on, I mean, strongly on that more Deuteronomistic hmm. side, less on the more. Uh, Jobian or more prophetic side, because the, the narratives of the prophets is centered on the notion of the righteous that suffer. Right. And it's that exact tension is where resurrection, hope, and doctrine emerges in later Hebrew developments and the emergence of Second Temple Judaism, out of which then the New Testament's born. Sorry, I went on a, like a long excursus no, I love to that. say that, I need but that. like the New Testament emerges in a world where that particular tension is being resolved in resurrection hope, you know? So like you read like the Maccabees and like, of course, because we're just, we're going to suffer. And because God is, you know, and because God is just, he's going to resurrect us and punish these people. Right. So that's, (laughs) so you can actually kind of see why resurrection hope, which is like not in the foreground in most of the Hebrew Bible but how does it become like the central thing for at least the Pharisee wing and which, which becomes rabbinic Judaism? Right. How did that become this central doctrine when it's like, you know, as the Sadducees wisely pointed out, seems pretty absent in the Torah. <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus sides with the Pharisees on that. Yeah, it's in the Torah, you know, but it's, right. you know, he has to do some funny exegesis to make the point. But um, so, but to me, I think it is actually, there is a, it makes kind of sense. Like it's the only way that both sides of these can be true is if God is the one who raises the dead. Right. Like that's the, that's the thing that makes the two both true. (laughs) Well, it would be kind of like the Deuteronomist view and the prophetic view. They like depart to some degree in this world, but they both end up at the same place. Like in the end, the Lord does actually vindicate the righteous, even if part of that involves making the unrighteous righteous. But in the end, it is righteousness that's vindicated. And so I can see how if we got people maybe like you and me get a little too intoxicated with the tensions and the contradictions and the prophetic struggle can actually like lose connection to righteousness altogether and the two can be totally detached. And then at that point, you actually can justify anything, which a lot of uh, free radical secularized eschatologies do, you know, like. Which is exactly and- the moral problem that this psalm's trying to address. Exactly. <laughs> is right. The, all the ways we're tempted to justify our corruption. Right. The fanatics of righteousness, any any means are justified as long as your end is right. So if you need to wipe out this entire race of people, go ahead. If you need to exterminate class enemies in order to create a righteous society, go ahead. You know, because in the end, everything is so messed up anyway. You may as well just take matters into your own hands in order to to get to the the kingdom, you know, or the proletariat or whatever your particular obsession is. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. That's spot on. Good. Oh, man, we're doing like everything this week. This is so much fun. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> everything from. Now Hebrew I like to, two Psalms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Theology, like politics, Hebrew, yeah. all of it. <laughs> I love it. It's great. The one last follow up is just to say notice how we were able to kind of think through all of that without actually making the messianic turn. Like the Ugh. whole resurrection logic is not – you don't need the New Testament for that. That's already happening mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Second Temple Judaism. The right. new, the twist with Jesus is that that 
combination of the suffering prophet and the resurrected justification of the of happens in time like three right. days apart rather than yeah. <laughs> right that's the that's the it gets ra- started so you can see it <laughs> yeah that's right that's yeah. the new twist right but otherwise and so therefore you can have things like the justification of the ungodly the the right. the gathering in of the gentiles and all that right right yeah but anyway that was just a quick addendum to say cool. like you don't actually need like oh there's this tension and jesus solves it it's actually right. <laughs> the tension is solved by God being the living God who raises the dead, the unique thing in Christian faith is is the the raising of one dead man right, in right. the middle of time as the beloved son, you know? Yeah, the commentator, Krauss, that I, I read for this, he said that, that this is, again, basically the same point. This is not a conceptually solved problem. This is a testimony to the work of the living God. The living God is the one who will solve this, not not your abstractions. And See, again, and that's prayer. That's appealing to the living God. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, one other thing I just wanted to bring out, I don't quite know as much what to do with it, but I, I think it's interesting because I would not have noticed it before I got more attentive to Judaism in its own right and, you know, distinctly Jewish hopes. But there's so much here about the possession of the land. And um, I know that is such a tricky issue for Americans as well as, you know, just for Christians and Jews generally, because it uh, immediately gets into the politics of Israel and the politics of Palestine and, you know, whether Israel is allowed to be a state and it's disproportionate criticism on the world stage, but then, you know, real issues that go on there and, you know, on and on and on. So, you know, but I, I just, I re- I realized recently in some of the reading I'm doing that I didn't have any place for the land. Like, I guess in a very Gentile way, I just thought land issues were like, I, I don't have any objection to Israel existing as a, as a nation state, but like the idea of the land having still theological content, I was always a little bit like, well, I mean, I kind of think like some, something about what's happening in Jesus is going back from like from tabernacle to tent back to tabernacle again. And that's Jesus word and sacrament are the traveling tabernacle that goes forth. It doesn't make all the nations come to Jerusalem, but goes from Jerusalem to all the nations. And I think you can actually sustain both readings from the new Testaments. But anyway, I'm just, I just, I just want to lodge that as an observation that I don't think I was actually capable of making maybe more than five years ago. And that this time through, I was like, wow, possession of the land is a really important theme here. And it is like the ultimate reward that is desired. And I'm just noting that now and trying to figure out, you know, what I think about it, where it fits into my, both my, you know, broad scale Christian faith, as well as my particular place as a Gentile believer in the Christian faith. No, I love that. That's so good. I, I mean, whatever it means for the land to take on a, let me use a more ancient language, whatever the spiritual sense is of Haaretz, the land, the spiritual sense doesn't empty the literal sense. Mm. <laughs> There's still place it's the land, right? Like, and you, and we should be as a general rule, though there will be exceptions as a general rule, we should be suspicious of a spiritual sense that completely empties the literal sense of any meaning. I mean, I would never accept that around Jesus. Like I would never, right. But I think that until very recently I had a purely spiritual sense of the land and no literal sense of the land. And I still don't know quite how to 
connect them. So I, that's why I'm just signaling my noticing more than anything oh, I don't, else. That's why I offered a general hermeneutical rule then rather than a comment on the particular <laughs> issue, because I don't have the one sorted out. I'm, I have a real tough time with, yeah. with this. And we can't question. not see like all of the crazy weirdness that Americans at both extremes of both despising yes. Israel and not wanting it to exist. And then having these insane, like let's force the world to end now kind of hopes around the land. So just like not to participate in either of those is itself such a struggle that I don't know where to land, land <laughs> where to land in like a, right. a fruitful way to talk about this. Yeah. So a spiritualistic emptying of the text is a great way to avoid the political mess. Right. Which <laughs> is extremes. a real, a real political mess. Yeah. Yeah. So. so I'm glad, I'm glad you flagged it. I also am glad you flagged it just because I would actually like to come back to those particular passages in our third segment because they jumped out at me as well for different, but related reasons. So let's take a quick break oh, cool. and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. We're looking at uh, Psalm 37 uh, with my guest, uh, Sarah Hinlicky wilson And uh, yeah, we're not going to, I don't I don't think it would be wise to it's too long. reread just, the whole thing. But let me just I, read a couple lines from the beginning just to kind of get us started. Do not be incensed by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they will quickly wither. And like green grass, they will fade. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and keep faith. Take pleasure in the Lord that he grant you your heart's desire. Direct your way to the Lord. Trust him and he will act. And he will bring forth your cause like the light and your justice like high noon. Be still before the Lord and await him. Do not be incensed by him who prospers, by the man who devises schemes. Let go of wrath and forsake rage. Do not be incensed to do evil, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Amen. Amen. What translation was that? So that's, uh, that's Robert Alter. Okay. He has that's a trans- good. He's really good. Krauss was really good, too. That was nice. I've used his psalm commentary. It's excellent. Yeah, so... He went with shall inherit the earth, which has obvious New Testament resonances. So I wanted to just briefly highlight that as we transition into sermon starters. So this is, this might be where I would go if I were to do a meditation or a teaching on this text. So here, I'm just going to read those. Those who hope in the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. The poor shall inherit the earth. I think I have all of them. For those he blesses inherit the earth. The just will inherit the earth. Hope for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the earth. 
So that's one, two, three, four, five. So he's saying the earth, but is it Haaretz? So yeah, so which means both earth and land. I mean, it's 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 a contextual choice whether to go land or earth or dirt or ground. You right. know, so I think possess the land in Krauss is actually a good idea because it highlights the land. Although it might not mean like the whole land, it could just mean you know the, your land, your allotment. Like think of the right, allotments right. in Joshua, just because definitive articles don't do the same thing in every language. But it is very striking that the phrase in verse 11 in the Septuagint, so in the Greek, it's hoi praes, uh, clay renomoi susan gain. So the meek shall inherit the earth. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like exactly the same wording mm-hmm. as appears in Jesus's Beatitudes. And when you wow. think about it, those Beatitudes have these same interpretive problems that we've been highlighting this whole conversation, <laughs> yeah. right? Where it's like, wait a minute, Jesus. No, they don't. <laughs> the meek don't inherit the earth. Right. <laughs> uh, right. The poor aren't happy. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, blessed are you when you're persecuted. What? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these, these tensions are kind of built into one of the most famous texts right. uh, of the Bible. One of yeah. the most well-known so I would be drawn to explore that a little bit just as a way of making some connections in a kind of playful way, not to make it a sermon about the Beatitudes, but in order to get into the very issues we've been discussing today, I think I feel like that would be a, a little catchword, a little connection hmm. to, such, to a familiar text to help illumine, let them illumine each other would be a sermon idea that would be so if I'm thinking, I call them sermon starters, this segment, right? So to our listeners, I'm like, well, there's a sermon starter. Just kind of put put Psalm 37 and the Beatitudes next to each other and see what emerges for yeah. you creatively in the inner text there. And talking about different meanings of of harets, of gain, uh, or gase, taste gase, you know, earth, the whole earth, you know, the land, yeah. the, the promised land. Just earth, just being earthy, recognizing our connection to the earth is also mm. a, a lesson there. So there's so much that could be played with. Yeah. That was, that was one little sermon starter. So sorry, I went first. Normally, I usually ask our guests for no, a sermon not starter, at all. But that, was, that was mine. I thought I'd pitch. How about you? Where might you go with this if you were teaching, preaching, praying, yeah. guiding others in any kind of way? You know, I heard it even more clearly in the altar translation you just read, but this is such a searing expose of outrage culture, which is just, you know, I'm not even in America and I get, you know, scarred by it regularly anyway, but it's so, what I find very interesting about what's going on is because everything America does wrong is, could be technically classified as a heresy because it all comes out of our deep Judeo-Christian tradition. And once you detach it from the land and from the Jesus, then you get, I mean, that's what heresy is. You know, it's a thing pulled out from the whole cloth. And so what I see in all of the outrage, whether it's right or left or something completely wacky, is that it's we're not righteous enough. The country isn't righteous enough. The political system isn't righteous enough. You are not righteous enough. This class of people is not righteous enough. And, you know, they could be right in every case. You know, I, outrage tends to make you overstate your case also. But even if it were all true, if every single outrage or accusation leveled was fully accurate, 
according to Psalm 37, would that warrant the emotional outrage and blowback that we are seeing and hearing and feeling in our bodies? And the answer is just no. <laughs> it's, it is that chill out, you fanatic of righteousness. You are going to actually not only you, not only are you not going to stop the evil and unrighteousness, you are going to so fast become an active participant in it. And, you know, it's back to what we were saying at the beginning, at some point, any, any end can be, can justify any set of means, however terrible, because, but, but we're pursuing righteousness. Like you you don't get to pursue righteousness unrighteously. I guess, I think that's probably what the big takeaway, and it seems to me terrifyingly applicable to what our culture has turned into. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, it it doesn't work. It is ineffectual. But even if it was, you know, even if you could make the world more just through your outrage, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul, right? It's this, it's actually not worth it, even if it were more effective than we are predicting it wouldn't be. You know what I mean? Because it, and there are moments of, of efficacy that get, get us to justify our anger, you know, like you have those, you sometimes lash out and people kind of get in line out of fear. Mm-hmm. People can sometimes avoid certain evils, you know, out of, out of, you know, cause sh- I mean, sh- you know, social shame is in human nature for a reason. It's like, it's <laughs> yeah. a very, it has, a, it has a powerful social function, you know, but it's just, you know, lashing out, shaming others. Man, it's back to your, that first verse that you said always made you appreciate at least that little moment in this psalm you know do not there's it's a different psalm but the famous you know in your anger do not sin right well sarah that i mean that's there's a whole sermon there's a whole teaching and there's a whole way of praying that emerges out of what you're suggesting there you know what does it mean to direct our outrage at the world onto god which is what the psalms consistently invite us to do. I mean, this is not an imprecatory psalm, but it has some moments of of intensity yeah. against the evil out in the world. What does it mean to to pray that? You know? Yeah. I, I you know, I just I keep coming back to and this um, should, in, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, like I would, I I get angry and outraged very easily myself. So I have learned to like guard myself against sources of outrage. Like that's one of the reasons I left social media because I just couldn't not. And um, and there is so much worth getting outraged about. But the, what I keep coming back to is. In your pursuit of justice, do you become unjust? In your determination for righteousness, do you become unrighteous? Like there are, there are, you know, things in the world worth fighting against for sure. But what kind of person do you turn into in the fight? And I think that's that's why this this um, the calm old sage and the wisdom tradition, uh, and the and and again the, the the more maligned, I would say, by you know people like us who are into paradox, kind of deuteronomist, like do good and goodwill results. Again, not propositionally true, but maybe if we think it sapientially, like in character formation, like, you know, it's not in a simplistic prosperity gospel or don't worry, everything's going to be fine. The Lord is in control. He has a plan. Like that stuff always really bugs me. But on the other hand, if what it's doing is it's talking me off the ledge of my own outrage, to say yes, but yeah. who who are you becoming <laughs> by by however well provoked being outraged? You're you're not 
I, you know, you're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem. Right. And I think that goes back to the moral freedom that I was, I was mentioning at the beginning is I, I get the impression so many people are uncomfortable with work that they do, you know, things that they participate in. And like, I, again, I, I won't simplistically say, oh, just quit your job if it's wrong, because, you know, God will take care of you as a cheap proposition, but as a formative prayer that, you know, can actually you know, it's funny, we're so into outrage now, but we are not at all into courage. Lots of bravado, no real courage. And like, maybe this psalm is actually the training ground for the courage and the integrity and the moral freedom in order to finally be able to do the costly but effective thing that's not just blowing more hot air, but actually could make a real difference in a non-stagey or outrageous or self-justifying kind of way. I love that, man. I didn't see that coming. There's a sermon on courage. And sometimes we'll comp, you know, you, your team, when you're angry and you lash out, your team will say, Oh, you're so courageous. Like, we'll, we, like we call, we use the word courage to compliment public expressions of being scandalized hmm. by others injustice. But I think you're questioning, like, that's, that's semblant courage, right? That's false courage. That's just wrath dressed in courage drag, right? Like it's pretending <laughs> to be courage, but it's not, right. it's not, right. it's just yeah. wrath. It's just wrath. Yeah. 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 Well, boy, we don't have to combine our sermon ideas, but I will say like that this is at least classically, this is exactly what the concept of meekness is trying to name. That mm. word has come to be so, but you know, in all of the in all of the kind of Greco-Roman literature, that that Greek word that's translated as meek mm-hmm. or gentle, which if we think of that as like a personality trait, then we think, okay, be a doormat. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 consistently always exposited, and early Christian authors do the same as anger at injustice that is reined in and not doesn't mm. take over you. So it doesn't mean you don't have any anger at injustice, but it's, it's well, it's, it's well ordered, well managed, righteous indignation. So actually yeah. that word meekness, which again, doesn't appear in the, well, it, it does indirectly, but it's not precisely here in the original Hebrew, but in those connections with the Beatitudes vis-a-vis the, 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 the Greek version of this Psalm, it's there. You know, and it's clearly there conceptually and substantively in this language of don't fret over evildoers. I mean, that's a way of, that's a summary statement of what meekness does. Yeah. Meekness is the virtue by which we habitually cease fretting over evildoers. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Righteously indignant, but not, but not letting it take us over and fretting which then just leads to all kinds of poor judgment and ultimately complicity as you direct wrath against the wrathful, you know, and injustice against the unjust. I like that. I think that is a a good place to get to. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. Got anything else you want to slip in under the wire? You had any last thoughts? Just wanted to. I don't think so. I think I'm going to keep hanging on to the do not worry for it leads only to evil. <laughs> Something I, I need to hear, but um, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll add one Psalm a year from now until I die at the age of 185 or whatever. So now I, since I have two Psalms now that I like, 
<laughs> I'll aim for a third in 2022. One a year. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, thanks, Sarah, so much for the time you gave uh, to me, to the tax, to our listeners. I appreciate it so much. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without you guys. Uh, thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And uh, thanks to our listeners, especially our uh, patron saints who support the show. If you'd like to uh, become one of those, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find some ways that you can support the show and get some extra content. With that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.